0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Musculoskeletal problems such as trigger finger, carpal tunnel syndrome, or Quervain tenosynovitis have typically required an orthopedist and an orthopedic procedure to treat them. A less invasive means of treatment is now available involving ultrasound guidance. With us today to discuss this relatively novel treatment is Dr. Jonathan Finnoff, a physiatrist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and sports medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome John. Thank you very much for having me today. Well, tell us about this procedure. Uh, What does it actually involve? Well,
1: what we're talking about is ultrasound guided surgery. And so I I like to compare it to other evolutions that have occurred in medicine. Uh, You know, originally when somebody had a heart attack, they needed a cardiothoracic surgeon to open up their chest and do a coronary artery bypass graft. And and then we kind of progressed on to interventional cardiologists doing the same thing just through uh, a catheterization and and using angioplasty and stents. And so there used to be open procedures, and then they progressed to arthroscopic or endoscopic procedures, and now you can do ultrasound-guided procedures, so. Are you thinking of doing cardiac stents in PM&R now? <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, Good. <laughs> But thanks for asking. Sure. Essentially, with ultrasound, you have these uh, high-frequency sound waves, and it gives a higher-resolution image even then, MRI for more superficial structures like your median nerve in the carpal tunnel or the first dorsal compartment tendons for Quervain's tenosynovitis in the wrist. So you can see the relevant structures that you would like to cut and the structures that you absolutely don't wanna cut. And so you can guide down either micro tools or needles or small razor blades, and uh, perform these surgical procedures just using essentially a needle hole as opposed to uh, a full incision.
0: So actually you've been using ultrasound guidance for injections into various parts of the body, joints, muscles, and so forth for some time, haven't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've been using it for several decades. And what you find is that uh, ultrasound-guided procedures, so ultrasound-guided injections, they are certainly more accurate than palpation-guided injections, and I'm sure that makes sense to everybody who's listening to this podcast. Essentially, if you're using a surface landmark and then you poke a needle through the skin, you're just not quite sure where that needle is after you can't see it anymore. So all of the research has shown that uh, our accuracy is not where we wish it would be when we're doing palpation-guided injections. And with ultrasound, you can see exactly where that needle is going. And so you really have incredible accuracy. Now, if you get the medication in the right place, you also have higher efficacy. So things work better if you put them in the right place. You minimize the complications associated with that. And therefore, because it's more efficacious, there are less complications, people get better faster. Uh, They don't need as much medical care, and it reduces costs. So overall, it's more accurate, more efficacious,
0: and cost effective. Can't beat all those advantages. Absolutely. Well, how does the effectiveness compare with the traditional management?
1: So I'm gonna talk, uh, focus really on the ultrasound-guided surgeries with that effectiveness. And uh, our preliminary data would suggest that um, from an effectiveness standpoint, They are equally effective, um, although the data is still building, and it's in in evolution, and so we're continuing to do research on this. The really exciting thing is uh, when all you have to do is either a small incision of two or three millimeters or just a needle hole in order to do these types of procedures, you cut less tissue Since you can see what you're going to cut before you actually cut it, it reduces your chance of cutting something you don't want to. And because you're cutting less things and you can see what you're cutting, you have less complications and you also have a quicker recovery because there's less tissue trauma in the area. So I'll give you an example. Uh, There is a new ultrasound-guided carpal tunnel release where you can put a needle underneath and then above the transverse carpal ligament and you thread a little piece of thread that's almost like a fishing line through the needle and it's it's a cutting thread. And by putting it through one needle and then back through the other needle, it loops around your transverse carpal ligament. And then you take the two ends and you just pull it back and forth and it cuts right through that transverse carpal ligament. And so all you've got is the little needle hole from the needles going in and out and the procedure takes you know, about 30 minutes to do, and people often will go back to work the same day. Uh, and right now, with your typical carpal tunnel surgery, you're really limited in the activity that you can do with that hand uh, for several weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, you can't submerge it. You have this incision site. You have to allow it to heal. You have to have your sutures removed and so on. With this, you have a Band-Aid. Uh, You can do uh, moderate activities with it, and usually within a week people are back to full unrestricted activities. So Hmm. I saw a patient that we did this on who was an ER doc and she worked a full shift that evening. Um, that wouldn't have happened well, if we didn't yeah. do it with ultrasound guidance.
0: Well, traditionally, management of uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is first uh, a splint, and then second, uh, maybe a steroid injection, and then third consideration is surgery. Mm-hmm. Does this procedure change that order, or would it just replace the surgery? Would it move it ahead of a steroid injection?
1: I actually think that we'll continue <clears throat> with the same order. Uh, you know, or night splint for sure, potentially doing neural glide stretches in the area and stretching that transverse carpal ligament steroid injection, you know, they've definitely been shown to be efficacious. And only when somebody either has failed those or they have more advanced carpal tunnel syndrome, like it's moderate to severe in nature, would they start considering a surgical procedure. And anybody who is thinking about a um, a carpal tunnel release type of procedure should certainly see their orthopedic surgeon first and get a traditional consultation on the area, talk about the risks and benefits of the surgery, uh, but then, one other option is considering this ultrasound guided release. Mm-hmm. But I think that at this point, the ultrasound guided release, while super exciting, and I think it, uh, you know, we can talk about potentially the cost effectiveness, the cost savings to the healthcare system using it, and uh, the other benefits we discussed before, it is right now in that translational phase where we're doing this, uh, but not on everybody who comes through the door. We have to make sure that they're an appropriate candidate, we can see all of the relevant structures, and that they understand the risks and benefits of a new procedure. But very exciting research that we're mm-hmm. doing right now.
0: Have insurance companies recognize the benefits of this?
1: Well, you know, that's gonna be very interesting. Right now you just bill for a standard surgical procedure because it oh. is a standard surgical yeah. carpal tunnel release, but. The difference is, and frankly I think this is what will eventually really drive uh, patients into having this type of procedure more frequently, is you're doing it typically in an outpatient setting. Sometimes you'll do it in an OR, but a lot of times these procedures are done in an outpatient setting. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a facility fee, you don't have an anesthesiologist, you're just using local anesthetic. they don't have significant follow-up visits because they don't have to have suture removals and all of these other uh, things. So the upfront cost is far less. The amount of time out of work is far less. So from a worker's comp standpoint, they're not having to pay a salary where somebody's not productive. And so ultimately, you're saving a huge amount of money in the healthcare system and insurance companies. You know, they they are looking at how can we. Treat something in a safe and effective manner at the least cost to the healthcare system, and so I think that mm-hmm. uh, uh, ultra, I think that these procedures will eventually be where insurance insurance companies are directing their patients.
0: Sure, I would think so. Well, you've given me a list of uh perce- of uh, conditions where this treatment is useful. Let's talk about another one: De tenosynovitis. Most of us have seen that, but it's maybe a little bit unusual. Describe the condition and then how you use your ultrasound-guided treatment.
1: Yeah, so de veins, tenosynovitis is uh, inflammation around the tendons, kind of at the base of the thumb. And so some people that commonly get this, new mothers who or fathers with a child at home and they're constantly lifting the baby, so their thumbs are pointed up and they're doing a radial deviation consistently with their wrists and they get this tendonitis right there at the base of the thumb. Uh, Other people that get it, people who swing hammers, um, uh, anything where you're doing repetitive lifting types of activities can get this. And so in general, this is treated very similar to carpal tunnel syndrome. You would typically ice the area, potentially take an anti-inflammatory, use a wrist splint that incorporates your thumb called Mm -hmm. a thumb spica splint possibly some iontophoresis which is electrical stimulation with some steroids so a bunch of different non-operative things if those don't work then a steroid injection is your first more interventional treatment and if that doesn't work and they have continued persistent significant pain then you can do a release of the sheath around the tendons and so traditionally that's done in an open manner in the operating room but you can do this with a little needle called a no-core needle that has a little scalpel at the very tip of the needle. It's an 18-gauge needle with this little scalpel at the end. And so, as you're guiding the needle with ultrasound down to where this tendon is, you can inject a little local anesthetic, it pushes tissues and nerves and other things away from the needle tip, and then you tuck this little scalpel between the tendon sheath and the tendon itself, and you do a little sawing in that area, and you open it up, and voila, they have less pain, they're, mm-hmm. they're feeling better almost immediately, and, and it's a very rapid recovery.
0: Excellent. Wish you knew more about providing health care to transgender and intersex patients? Not sure what the evidence-based best practices are? Attend live or follow the live stream online course September 26th through the 28th from anywhere in the world to Mayo Clinic's principles in the care of transgender and intersex patients. You'll learn the latest in medical, surgical, psychosocial, legal and ethical issues from experts who provide care for this emerging patient population. Find out more at ce.mayo.edu slash transgender2019. Trigger finger, something that's pretty common. I probably see it at least uh, once or twice a month. How can this procedure be used for management of that?
1: Yeah, so trigger finger, uh, those of you who have seen patients with this, it's absolutely, when people come in, they describe it as a trigger finger. They wake up and their hands in a fist and they try to straighten out their fingers and one finger is stuck and they have to pop it out. And after they move around for a while, usually it works itself out a little bit, but it hurts. Uh, and as it gets worse, it can happen all day long and it can actually get pretty stuck in that position where you just can't straighten it out. And one of the more common treatments is a cortisone type of injection into that area, trying to reduce the swelling of the pulley system around the base of your finger where mm-hmm. you're getting this triggering. Uh, if that is not effective or a trigger sp- uh, finger splint is not effective, then you can do a number of different procedures in this area. You can loop the thread around it and cut the little pulley in that area. You can use the no-core needle with the scalpel at the end of the needle and cut that A1 pulley. Or another procedure is taking an 18-gauge spinal needle and the uh, stylet that is inside of the 18-gauge needle. Normally, the bevel of the stylet faces the same direction as the needle tip. And if you rotate the stylet 180 degrees it creates a v-shaped cutting tip so you can guide an 18 gauge needle right down to this a1 pulley flip the stylet in that 18 gauge needle and now you've got this little cutting blade at the end and you advance it across the a1 pulley and it cuts it and Again, I had an orthopedic surgeon that came in and said, oh, I've got to operate this afternoon, but I've got this trigger finger and it's driving me crazy. Can you release it? We released it. They mm-hmm. went and operated that afternoon, no problem. So,
0: you know, game changer. Yeah, pretty amazing. How about adductor tendinopathy? I don't see that often. I may have seen it a few times, but uh, tell us a little bit about that condition.
1: Yeah, there are so many interesting conditions. And I, I mean, I feel like this every day uh, I, I may not have seen it, but it probably has seen me. Right. So the That's more things that we do. hear right. about, the more uh, we find <clears throat> that, holy cow, these things are coming into my office. So adductor tendinopathy is one of the common causes of groin pain in athletes, such as soccer players or in Minnesota or hockey players, people who are doing repetitive adduction with their thigh. And so the adductors, they come up and they attach right on your pubic tubercle, which is right in the groin region, And it's really common to get a chronic tendonitis in that area or tendinopathy where you start getting these degenerative changes and then it just becomes recalcitrant to standard treatments. And so one of the things that can be done is a release. So you have a bunch of different adductor muscles and tendons in that area and you can release just the superficial aspect of the adductor longus tendon and it reduces all of the tension on that spot that causes so much pain and disability in these patients and uh, again this looped thread we and this is sort of how we've been doing it at mayo clinic when we develop these procedures we look at a common sur- we look at a common problem that has a common surgery for it and we see whether we can adapt it to ultrasound guidance then we take it to the cadaver lab and we try it out and do feasibility studies can we do it Uh, and does it appear to be safe, and are we cutting the things that we anticipate? And then we do a gradual translation into clinical practice where in somebody who has a very specific indication, we can see all of the appropriate structures. We do a trial of that procedure. We see if that works well, and then we do a larger expanded case series of studies, and then we do a case control study comparing it to standard surgical procedures, looking at cost-effectiveness, complication rate, how fast people recover, and then whether they whether this is a sustained benefit or whether it uh, comes back in the future. And so the adductor release is one of those ones that we're in that translational phase and in the initial patients that we've done this on. It's been amazing. Mm.
0: Finally, a condition I have not heard of, and again, it may have seen me, but I don't recognize it, chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this is this is a great one because it it absolutely is one of those ones that sees primary care physicians frequently. I mean, if if I was in a room and I had a bunch of primary care physicians in front of me and I said, "How many of you have seen shin splints in the last year?" I'll bet the vast majority of people would raise their hands. The funny thing is is that shin splints is a uh, global term for pain in the legs. And one of the more common causes of leg pain is chronic exertional compartment syndrome. And what this is, is as you exercise and you shunt blood into a muscle, that muscle will swell. So it gets pumped up. And uh, so the muscles in different compartments in your leg, as they swell, they can start having an increase in their pressure and it hurts. And uh, it essentially shuts people down. And if it... If it swells enough, it actually starts causing neurologic symptoms. So they got numbness, tingling, and weakness. So as they're running, they get this pain and then they get a floppy foot from a foot drop. And then they stop running and just sit down for a little bit and the pain goes away. Mm -hmm. So when they come in to see the doctor, they're like, I have shin pain. The doctor examines them and they don't really hurt. And you're like, well, I assume it must be the shin splints but it's very likely this chronic exertional compartment syndrome. The traditional treatment for this is a fasciotomy, and as all of you know, a fasciotomy is a, you know, top to bottom cut, a big scar, and uh, takes a long time to recover from, and actually, in some of the compartments in the leg, has a 15% complication rate. So really, you know, a lot of morbidity associated with this procedure. Mm -hmm. And we've developed a procedure where we do a three millimeter incision we put in a little meniscotome, which has a v-shaped cutting tip right through the skin guide it down to the fascia and then just like cutting wrapping paper with scissors you slide it down the fascia and it cuts the fascia from top to bottom you slide it out you put a little skin glue on that area some compression on the region and the person walks out of the room they're able to go to school the next day Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're running usually within the next week and normally back to full activities in about two weeks, as opposed to taking eight to 12 weeks to get back to normal activity. So, you know, in your young, active population, a fasciotomy is a big deal. And this is, again, a game changer for those patients.
0: Pretty dramatic. Are you teaching others these procedures? Are you having courses in these techniques? You know,
1: right now we're so much in the early phases and this translational phase of develop, of translating it into clinical practice that the majority of what we're doing is prospective studies mm-hmm. uh, on our patients and determining is the efficacy better? Is the safety profile better? Are we having higher patient satisfaction rates? Does it save money? And we want to have solid evidence on all of those factors before we start uh, teaching this and, and uh, making it more of a, a global um, accessible procedure mm-hmm. to patients. So right now, these are really just available here and and on a case-by-case basis.
0: Right. Well. How do you summarize what we've just talked about, the usefulness, the benefits of the ultrasound-guided surgical procedure?
1: So I, in my opinion, and I may be a little bit biased because this is my area of research, but I think this is a game-changer in medicine. What we're doing is taking standard surgical procedures and miniaturizing them so that we have a minimally invasive new technique that minimizes complications, maximizes uh, recovery, reduces patient, uh, the healthcare system cost, and improves uh, patient satisfaction with these procedures. So I, I believe that this is going to revolutionize many different common procedures in orthopedic and frankly neurosurgical uh, medicine at this time.
0: We've been discussing ultrasound guided surgical procedures for common orthopedic conditions with Dr. Jonathan Finoff a physiatrist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic. John, I'm going to bring you back when I hear you're starting to do stents in cardiac patients. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your information with us. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.